from PRX. Today on Studio 360. Okay, now let's have a roll of the drums, please, for the biggest bomb of 1987 or of almost any recent year. A notorious cinematic disaster from 1987. You didn't think, did you, that we had forgotten Ishtar? Why Elaine May's Ishtar bombed. And why some critics and fellow filmmakers think that's a travesty. The movie was hexed. The well was poisoned. And I don't think anyone could watch it with an open mind. Plus... You can't fake chemistry. You really cannot fake chemistry. How the stars of the new movie Booksmart became best friends to portray best friends. We couldn't, you know, go back and redo our lives, but we could make sure that from the moment we did meet and we did get cast, we spent every minute together, and there was no greater way to do that than living together. Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver. That and more is ahead on Studio 360 right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. The heavy favorite for best actress in a play at this year's Tony Awards, we're taping just before the ceremony, is Elaine May. She gave an astonishing performance in Kenneth Lonergan's The Waverly Gallery, playing a family matriarch getting Alzheimer's. I've lost my purse! Oh, why is Ellen so angry at me? My keys? Just to find my keys? Oh, I can't find my keys! Now 87, Elaine May has made a career out of astonishing people. It started in the 1950s as half of the great, smart, groundbreaking comedy duo Nichols and May. Information. Uh, operator, give me the number, please, of uh, George Kaplan. That is Kaplan. Mm-hmm, yes. That is K as in knife. <laughs> Her partner, Mike Nichols, became very famous as a movie director starting in the 1960s with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate. But Elaine May became a movie director, too, which, if you don't know or if it slipped your mind, is understandable because 32 years ago, her reputation as a filmmaker was torpedoed. Studio 360's Evan Chung has the story. There's a Far Side comic that showed up in newspapers in May 1987. Its title is Hell's Video Store. A devil works the checkout counter, which is near a pit of fire, and every video on every shelf is the same movie. Ishtar. This may be all you've ever heard about Ishtar, that it's a punchline. Why would anybody want to sit through 12 hours of horrible movies? I could barely make it through Ishtar. We could go back in time and avert major disasters. What do you mean, like persuade Dustin Hoffman not to make Ishtar? <laughs> Let me tell you girls the three most important things I learned about life. Number one, hold fast to your friends. Number two, there's no such thing as security. And number three, don't go see Ishtar. <laughs> For comedy writers, Ishtar has been the flop that keeps on flopping. A notorious turkey. A critical catastrophe. One of the worst movies ever made. This was a $44 million comedy that hardly made enough money to pay for its advertising. But I wouldn't have even objected to the budget so much if this movie had contained at least a few forlorn funny moments. But it did not. But if you dig deeper into the story of Ishtar, you'll find that it's a film that harbors a secret. 
which is that it's really good. And the treatment the movie and its brilliant writer and director Elaine May got was simply unjust. Okay, so what is this movie? Ishtar is in the tradition of a buddy comedy. Carrie Rickey was the longtime film critic at the Philadelphia Inquirer and is also a longtime Ishtar defender. I found it funny then, and I find it even funnier and sometimes profound now. It's about the misadventure of two talentless singer-songwriters played by Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. Telling the truth is a dangerous tunnel. When you get out of that tunnel, it's you've a, got it's bitter It's a black herb. life ahead. Forget herb. I never heard of a hit that had the word herb in it. And they both have bad voices and no rhythm with these songs that were so bad. I mean, hilariously, epically bad songs. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. And they get hired to sing in a, a country called Ishtar, which is... I guess supposed to be Northern Africa, like Morocco or Tunisia or something. I look to Mecca and I see the place where we live and the funny old tree. Unbeknownst to each other, one of them gets in cahoots with the CIA and the other one gets in cahoots with the Arab revolutionary played by Isabella Johnny. I am begging you to give me the chance to overthrow a tyrant. And it's not going to go well. What a smuck I was. Schmuck. It's not smuck. It's schmuck. Smuck. There's obviously a gag of playing literally against their types. Jonathan Rosenbaum is another film critic who's long supported Ishtar. He wrote for the Chicago Reader for over 20 years. I mean, waking Warren Beatty, a person who's clueless when it comes to women, and... Dustin Hoffman is the ladies' man. You've got to give yourself a break. You've never been out with anyone but your wife. Yeah, but you got to have the looks, Chuck. I mean, you walk into a place like that, and the girls just want you. And the way you walk, you can only do that with a small body. Did you ever hear of a big sports car? Elaine May modeled the characters off the road pictures of the 40s, where Bob Hope and Bing Crosby sing and dance through various exotic locales. We're all on the road to Morocco. Only in Ishtar, she made her characters talentless, flawed, and delusional. She's looking at men in a very gimlet-eyed way. She really digs in deep about male vanity. The only thing that Simon and Garfunkel or Bruce Springsteen or any of these guys have that we don't have is an agent. Do you think so? Dangerous business is as good as bridge over troubled water any day of the week. Do you think so? You know, they're absolutely hopeless as songwriters and even as functioning individuals. And yet they're very lovable, I think. No matter how monstrous people are, and all of her characters in a way are monsters, she loves them all. To people who have only seen masculinity presented as black and white, as in hero, villain, as in winner, loser. This is very shocking and nuanced. It's something Elaine May has been doing since the brilliant beginning of her career. Even though your stuff is truly abrasive, at the same time there's a warmth underneath it in a cockeyed way. But I think that it's almost impossible to uh, portray a character or do a scene unless you have sympathy with the character. This is Elaine May talking to Studs Terkel in 1958. Unless you sort of admit beforehand that you could very easily do the exact same thing. Yeah. And if you don't do that, then you have something that's sort of smart-alecky, if you'll excuse that. That's the best way I can uh, sum it up. She was being interviewed alongside her comedy partner, Mike Nichols. Nichols also would 
become an acclaimed director of movies like The Graduate. But already in the 50s, they were revolutionizing American comedy, first as part of the Compass Players in Chicago, which basically invented improv as we know it, and then as a duo, Nichols and May. They became the particle physicists of improvisational comedy, kind of stripping down comedy to its atomic weight. Arthur, phone, you were supposed call. to call yeah. me last Friday. I, mother, darling, I just didn't have a second and you I could didn't cut have my a throat. Second. I was so busy. Arthur, I was, sat I, oh, by no. that phone I know. I know. all day Friday. Just work, work, they didn't work. have punchlines. The humor came from playing real, from showing relationships that anyone could recognize and identify with. And your father said to me, Phyllis, eat something, you'll faint. I said, no, Harry, no. I don't want my mouth to be full when my son called me. Mom. Everything changed then. It was no longer comedians doing golf jokes or take my wife jokes. They were reflecting on the human comedy. So this was Who Made Ishtar, an empathetic comic genius. It had rich characters, funny songs. So why did nobody see it? Why did it lose an estimated $60 million? And why did it get this awful reputation. I have a particular theory about what happened with Ishtar. It's something about the American character, I think. It seems to me clear, if you're looking at it now, it's quite clearly a satire about Reagan's politics in the period and America's politics. It's a little rough right now because the communists are trying to instigate a coup against the Amir and take over Ishtar. Why? It don't work. Ready to get Ishtar uh, tomorrow to get in with that? Why? It don't work. I mean, one thing Elaine May has said was that she wanted to say something to Reagan. So she thought, well, look, he's not going to pay attention to a movie unless it be a mainstream lowbrow comedy like the road movie. So why don't we make a road movie picture in which we get across the idea of what we think is idiotic about America's behavior in the Middle East? And framed as that way, it's extremely funny. Two Americans astride a blind camel in the desert, which represents American policy in the Middle East. What the hell's the matter with him? Is he blind? Well, yeah, he is, but but he's in perfect condition. I think the reason why Ishtar rubs people the wrong way is it was saying something about America that was accurate, but the people didn't want to face or acknowledge. So that's one theory. Reagan-era audiences didn't want to engage with its politics. But there's another theory about Ishtar's failure. And it's a juicy one. Sabotage. I think we were barely two weeks or so into pre-production when the head of the studio, Guy McElwain, was fired. Philip Shopper was the artistic consultant on Ishtar, basically Elaine May's right-hand man throughout the entire process. And so that's not a good thing. (laughs) Because the new head of Columbia became a British producer named David Putnam. And this was bad news for the Ishtar team for three reasons. First, David Putnam was a crusader against movies with exorbitant budgets. Like, say, Ishtar. At that point, a $40 million comedy was unheard of. Second, Putnam had a long-running feud with Warren Beatty from when Beatty's movie Reds and Putnam's movie Chariots of Fire were rivals for Best Picture. David Putnam said that Warren Beatty should be spanked in public for making a movie as extravagant as Reds. And third, Putnam also had a long-running feud with Dustin Hoffman. They hated each other. So this is now the man who is in control of our movie, and we're still six months away from release to the public. 
In other words, a guy with a public beef against the two stars of Ishtar and a philosophical objection to the existence of a movie like Ishtar was now overseeing Ishtar in the middle of production. About two months before the movie came out, there was a very long feature in New York Magazine talking about all of Elaine May's eccentricities on set and was full of anecdotes which made it seem like it was going to be the biggest bomb of all time. The timing of this, not long after David Putnam came into power at Columbia, it smelled fishy to the Ishtar team. The feeling was that a lot of these stories were instigated and put out there, if not thought up by Mr. Putnam, at least with his uh, blessings, <laughs> because he wanted to be the new regime, not the old regime that you know would finance a movie like Ishtar. It's almost as though he encouraged this movie to fail, to prove that his way of doing things is better than what these other people were doing before he came on board. Now, it's very important for me to step in here and say that this is all unsubstantiated. There's no evidence that I can point to to say that David Putnam leaked negative stories to the press to sabotage his studio's own movie. I reached out to David Putnam, but he declined to respond to the allegations. Now, looking at it from Elaine May's perspective, who, by the way, famously avoids all interviews, it is easy to see why she would be suspicious of studios, because she'd already had terrible experiences with them on her other films. The problem she had was really just sort of like getting her own way in terms of having control over the film. It started with the studio butchering her first film, A New Leaf, in 1971, which Elaine May wrote, directed, and starred in opposite Walter Matthau. A New Leaf ran much longer than the studio wanted it, and they cut out an hour of it. It's still funny as hell. Have you ever tasted Morgan David's extra heavy Malaga wine with soda and lime juice? Uh, not that I can recall. It tastes a little like grape juice, and every year is good. Why don't you just drink grape juice? It's not as sweet. The studio seemed to be happier with the heartbreak kid. I just wanted to know how it felt to you. It felt really terrific. It's just, I don't understand why I have to announce it all the time. I have to be reassured. What's wrong with that? It's difficult to give out bulletins in the heat of passion. Great movie. Shocking movie. But things got really bad with Mikey and Nikki in 1976, which is possibly her masterpiece. It's a gangster drama starring Peter Falk and John Cassavetes. That doesn't scare you. To think that one day you'll die. Be nothing. Look, Nick, you want to visit your mother? Let's visit your mother because the conversation is stupid. It isn't stupid. It's interesting if you're going to die. I'm not going to stand here at 1 o'clock in the morning and discuss what's going to happen to me when I die. I mean, at Michigas, I leave to the Catholics. The studio thought it was too long too talky and too weird and too this. They accused her of being a director who didn't know the word cut, who shot an unreasonable amount of footage. I believe the number of feet she shot on Mikey and Nikki was three times the length of Gone with the Wind, which is an almost four-hour movie. The studio took it out of her hands and made their own cut of the movie. And it flopped. Ishtar, a decade later, was her next film. And the crew had heard all these stories of this strange, difficult woman who couldn't finish a movie. So that's what everybody is expecting. I think they are looking to fulfill their prophecies when they come to work on the movie. Oh, you know, she's crazy. So we're, we're working for a crazy person. So this movie is bound to be crazy. 
all the technicians, mostly male, were saying, I know how to shoot this. No, that shot's not going to work. It was constant on-set fighting. Many of them were irritated at her directing style of shooting a lot of takes of the same scene. She knows acting and she knows comedy and she knows when she's got it. So she will keep going until she gets it. In someone like Fred Astaire, who demanded take after take of his numbers, it's called perfectionism. But with someone like Elaine May, it's called being difficult. I write a certain percentage of this off to stone sexism. I mean, she was only, I believe, the third woman in the Directors Guild of America, the third studio director in Hollywood history. I think every day she had to fight to be heard. And I think what looked like oppositional behavior was probably a way of exercising control. Because, you know, when a man does it, it just shows he's strong. If a woman does it, it seems to suggest she's spiteful and difficult. Like, how dare she do that, you know, where it's okay for somebody like a certified genius like Stanley Kubrick to do it, you know? The New York Magazine cover story that came out in advance of the movie was filled with horror stories told by mostly anonymous crew members. So let's take one anecdote that was pointed to as a symbol of Elaine May's great folly. Elaine May didn't like the way the desert looked, and so she wanted to change it. She wanted to move the dunes. Supposedly, while filming in Morocco, Elaine May didn't care for the look of the Sahara with all of its big dunes. So in an act of hubris and wastefulness, she actually spent time and money flattening a huge area of the desert. And that never happened. There's a scene in the film where Warren and Dustin are crawling along the desert floor. Are those vultures? Yeah. You faint. They thought you were dead. You mean they're here on Spag? But there are no sandy plains in the kind of desert that we were in. Where it was flat, it was hard, rocky ground. If they were crawling on dry, rocky ground, you'd be saying, did we cut to another country? Where are we now? And so we did move from some duny area, some sand, to cover what was probably 30 square yards. It wasn't like we made this huge football field worth of sandy. We just made an area large enough to be able to shoot the scene. And that was it. Whatever the truth is, stories like this were spread as evidence for the kind of offensive wastefulness of Elaine May's production. And this is all before the movie came out. I really think that the advanced publicity killed it. The movie was hexed. And then critics joined the pylon. Almost every review, without fail, took a dig at how much Ishtar cost the studio. Yeah, but why should we care what, you know, sort of like vulgar millionaires and billionaires do with their money, whether they get more money or lose more money? I mean, it's not as if it was our money that was being spent. And the budget may not have been the only factor unrelated to the actual content of the movie that was affecting the reviews. Warren Beatty had given the press a very hard time. I was present at a time when he publicly humiliated Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel at the Toronto Film Festival. He, well, diminished them and dissed them. So they had a chance to kind of get even with him, with Ishtar. Okay, now let's have a roll of drums, please, but imaginary drums, because this movie isn't good enough for real drums. I have saved the last spot on the program for the biggest bomb of 1987 or of almost any recent year. 
And you didn't think, did you, that we had forgotten Ishtar? No, you didn't think so. This was- the well was poisoned, and I don't think anyone could watch it with an open mind. It's a movie that's hated without reason. It's just a snowballed sort of reputation. Ishtar's reputation is finally starting to improve. It has big fans like Richard Linklater, Lena Dunham, Edgar Wright, Quentin Tarantino. Martin Scorsese calls it one of his all-time favorites. And that's all great, but a little too late. Because the real injustice isn't actually what happened to Ishtar. It's what it did to Elaine May's career. I mean, it's pretty obvious that if that is this well-known flop, why have her make any other movies? Plus the additional reputation of sort of being difficult to work with and eccentric and a woman just, I think, put her aside. Elaine May never directed a movie again, except for one made-for-TV documentary, which isn't to say she went away completely. She is considered a genius script writer and fixer. And God knows how many scripts she's doctored. Tootsie, Reds, Dangerous Minds, The Birdcage, Primary Colors, Heaven Can Wait, and probably countless more screenplays we don't know about because she's almost never credited. But still, it's hard for me not to feel depressed that we only got four Elaine May movies, that we've been deprived of the voice of a genius for going on three decades, all for a supposedly bad movie that nobody actually bothered to see, as Elaine May put it herself in 2006. If all of the people who hate Ishtar had seen it, I would be a rich woman today. Remember that Far Side comic where the only movie you can rent in hell is Ishtar? Well, later on in the introduction to a Far Side collection, the cartoonist Gary Larson confessed that he hadn't actually seen Ishtar when he drew the comic. Years later, I saw it on an airplane, Larson wrote, and was stunned at what was happening to me. I was actually being entertained. There are so many cartoons for which I should probably write an apology, but this is the only one which compels me to do so. Let's put it this way. A movie like It's a Wonderful Life wasn't a huge success unreleased, and now it's a classic. I think sometimes contemporary critics are not always right, and Elaine May is usually a little ahead of her time. Maybe in enough time, Ishtar will be seen as a classic. But I guess she knew what she was in for. Elaine May is a cinematic truth teller. And as they sing in Ishtar... Telling the truth can be dangerous business Honest and popular don't go hand in hand If you admit that you can play the accordion No one will hire you in a rock and roll band But we can Studio 360's Evan Chong produced our story. Coming up... Why the stars playing besties in the new movie Booksmart love the TV series Broad City. The way that they love each other and they have this sort of sound and rhythm to their banter that is so iconic. Dude, that's where I work! Dude, I'm in there like... Every day. Dude, how have we not seen each other? Dude, this is insane. I always say dude to each other. <laughs> yeah. Dude? dude. <laughs> Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver bring a playlist of their favorite TV and movie depictions of friendships. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 
360. Experience life. Have some fun. There's a new fiesta in the making as we speak. Full kegs. Everybody's gonna be there. You ought to go. This is our last party as high school people. So we're gonna still go? <laughs> yeah, what the hell? I guess. It is an American movie genre. From American Graffiti in the 1970s to Dazed and Confused in the 90s to Superbad in the aughts, the end of high school romp comedy follows a certain template. A mega party to be had and a wild, wacky, booze-fueled odyssey to get there. These movies are also stories focused on boys' lives. Rueful, horny boys wanting to break the rules, get the girl, get out of town. But this summer, finally, the template has been altered, updated. Missed ya. I missed you. I missed you so much. In one night. Booksmart is a new movie directed by Olivia Wilde about two smart young women, Molly and Amy, best friends finishing at the top of their class because they spent high school getting all A's and volunteering instead of partying so they could get into good colleges only to realize at the last second that their hard-partying classmates also got into the same good schools. Let's go to Nick's party. Are you kidding? No, no way. We only have one night left to have studied and partied in high school. Otherwise, we're just going to be the girls that missed out. We haven't done anything. We haven't broken any rules. Okay, we've broken a lot of rules. One, we have fake IDs. Fake college IDs so we can get into their 24-hour library. Name one person whose life was so much better because they broke a couple of rules. Picasso. Yes, he broke art rules. Name a person who broke a real rule. Rosa Parks. Name another Susan one. Susan B. Anthony. God damn it. So they embark on a wild, wacky, booze-fueled odyssey to get to the mega party. But the depiction of the two characters and their friendship isn't generic. It's very specific and fresh and believable. Molly is played by Beanie Feldstein, who was in the film Lady Bird, playing Shirsa Ronan's best friend. Are you okay? I'm fine. What happened? Nothing, really nothing. Why are you crying? Just crying. Some people aren't built happy, you know. And Amy in Booksmart is played by Caitlin Deaver, whom you might have seen in the FX series Justified. I miss my mama. Imagine. Not my daddy. He was pitiful. Does that make me bad? And they're here with me now. Welcome. So I'm going to ask the same question of each of you. Caitlin, I want you first to describe Beanie's character, Molly. Ooh, fun. Okay. Um, Beanie's character, Molly, is sort of the one that spearheads the journey with Amy in the movie. Amy, I'm so serious. They think that we're robots. They think all we care about is taking a million APs and getting into Yale and editing Law Review at Georgetown and clerking for a federal judge between junior and senior year before eventually becoming the youngest justice ever nominated to the Supreme Court of the United States. 
in my case. You get the point. Nobody knows that we are fun. She is unapologetically fierce, an incredibly smart, incredibly intelligent, so fun. Uh, now, Beanie, uh, your turn, uh, Caitlin's character. Um, so Caitlin's character, Amy, is a bleeding heart. She is deeply compassionate. She's an activist. She's like the creating all these... Um, civil rights groups at the school and leading every protest and she's going to Botswana to help women make their own tampons and save lives during the summer and she's this really really loving deeply loyal and a much more quiet um uh in a bit timid more than Mm. molly is Mm -hmm. um she's also uh, a girl that's interested in other girls and gets to explore her sexuality in the film. What are you doing? Go back! Oh, that was bad. That was that was bad. I'm good. I don't even know if she's into girls. I'm good. That was... She wore a polo shirt to prom. Well, that's just her gender performance. It's different from her sexual orientation. I'm sorry, but I don't get it. Well, gender is no, constructive. thank you. That much I understand. It's just, it's a little bit shocking that, that you're into Ryan. It's just, it's not, it's not what I anticipated. I just like that she's always in a good mood and she's got a really cute smile. She just seems like she'd be a really fun person to have sleepovers and lie around with. What's so special about Booksmart is it portrays two brilliant, fierce, passionate young girls and yet they are so different. Um, They share a passion and a love for school and a love for each other but the way that they express themselves is very different. One of the great things about both of these characters is that they're not uh, familiar stereotypes that you see in movies. They, They, I mean... The girls who were my friends when I was in school and the girl I married and is my wife are are kind of like this, which is to say smart and disciplined and ambitious, but not not square and not like, you know, uh, grinds. Right. I mean, you don't don't see that much in movies. Yeah. And I think what you're picking up on is um, something that we both love about the film so much, which is that. You get to see the girls be brilliant at school and be fierce and unapologetic and strident. And and yet when they're alone, their their intelligence and their banter and their wit is still there. But they also are loose and silly and funny and warm. And I think the showing the not only the duality, but the, the multi, you know, multidimensionality of these girls is what is resonating with people. They they feel like they're seeing their real friendships. Yeah. And we've had, I mean, it's crazy, but Beanie and I have, have had several people coming up to us being like, I've never seen my best friends on screen before. I've never seen that relationship before in a movie. Do you, as human beings, overlap with these characters a bit, a lot, at all? How, how much do you overlap with each of your characters? I'd say I'm sort of... Uh, like 40% Amy <laughs> because Olivia allowed me to sort of take some of my own specificities to the character and like to the, the role. Like the auto harp? Like the auto harp. Really? Um, yeah, that auto harp is something that I, in the early stages of prep, I, you know, we were sort of talking about that uh, picnic scene and, and we were thinking like, oh, it'd be funny. Like what would be Amy be doing 
while Molly's sort of silently panicking and freaking out. And we were thinking, oh, maybe she'd calm her down with a song or a poem or, okay, if she's doing a song, should she just be singing or should she have a guitar? And I'm like, what if she's playing the auto harp? If you don't say something in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to take you to the hospital. I don't want to say I'm getting concerned, but to be honest, I'm getting concerned. This is fun. Okay. I create a playlist for every character that I play in films. And for Amy, I create, in her playlist, there was a lot of Joni Mitchell, there was a lot of June Carter, um, uh, Patti Smith, Alanis Morissette, like all these strong, strong female singer songwriters. And I just think an auto harp was just like the perfect, just random instrument that of course Amy would have and know how to play. That's interesting though about the the creating the 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 playlist as part of the backstory for these characters that isn't provided by the screenwriters. Did you do that as well, Beanie, with with your character? I didn't I I didn't create a playlist for her specifically, although she definitely listens to a lot of musicals and a lot of um, intense rap, which I think <laughs> mm. <laughs> sums her up as a person. But uh I I thought a lot about um, a few friends of mine who are very, very intense people. And if you met them for about five minutes, you'd be like, that is a lot of intense energy. <laughs> and if you know them well, you know it's because they're actually really insecure and they're they're throwing up a wall. They're putting on this armor to cover up their insecurities. And that expresses itself um, on the surface as intensity, but on, underneath is actually um, a real vulnerability. And once I kind of locked into that, I knew that I had cracked the code to Molly Davidson. <laughs> um, I don't feel that similar to her. I think what we share is our intensity um, in our our love of our best friends. But her... Her demeanor and her energy in the world is different than mine. You did not know each other before you were cast. They cast you before knowing that you could pull off the appearance of being uh, best friends. Really? There was no screen test just to make sure you got along or could fake chemistry or something? No. You can't fake chemistry. You really cannot fake chemistry. But yeah, Beanie and I... Hadn't met. Uh, But we lived together through the entire uh, rehearsals and prep and shooting of the film. Um, Caitlin and I shared an apartment. So that that was something that Olivia had, um, the first time Caitlin and I met, the three of us had lunch. And Olivia was like, it would be incredible if you could live together. Ha ha. And the two Hmm. of us looked at each other after knowing each other for 20 minutes. And we were like, let's do it. No joke. Like literally we had sat down. The Appies hadn't even arrived. And agreed to living with each other you know you read this script and you go oh this movie would not be what it is if it without their extreme bond and and connection i think the the main character of booksmart is not me or caitlin it's the space between us Mm -hmm. and i think that friendship was always the center character of the film. Mm-hmm. And we knew we had to make up for lost time because Molly and Amy have spent every day together since they were five. Yeah. And um, we couldn't, you know, go back and redo our lives. But we could make sure that from the moment we did meet and we did get cast, we spent every minute together. And there was no greater way to do that than living together. The, the thing that, among other things, that, that make it very 2019 to me is the fact of Caitlin, your character, being an out lesbian. That even 10 years ago, I don't I can't imagine being in a big Hollywood comedy. Yeah, no, I'm 
really, really honored to play a girl like Amy where her sexuality is not put on a pedestal. It's not her defining quality. You know, Amy wasn't put in this movie to be the queer character of the film. Uh She's not the only queer character. She's not the only queer character in the film, which is really, really great. And, um, you know, I think that that's what's amazing about Olivia is that she just wanted representation and she fully gets this generation and she really, really wanted to represent um, this generation in the best way possible. Absolutely. Although, to be fair to Olivia, she's only like. 10 or 12 years older than you guys. So anyway, we asked the two of you for examples of friendships in film and and TV shows that informed the friendship you portray in Booksmart. One is Abby and Alana from the Comedy Central show Broad City, which just ended. Yes. Yes. So Beanie, this was on your list. So what was it about Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer who played versions of themselves that struck you so hard the way that they love each other and their own sort of like um they have this sort of sound and and um rhythm to their banter that is so iconic we knew that molly and amy's would maybe stem from a different place and they'd be talking about different things but that um they always say dude (laughs) dude dude Dude, that's where i work dude i'm in there like every day dude how have we not seen each other Dude, this is insane they have a rhythm that when you hear it, even if you weren't watching it, you'd be like, that's Broad City. You know what? You're right. This could be exciting. You know why? This is going to be the time that I take a license photo that is good. Of course you are. With that ass? They don't let you put your ass in the photo. They really should. I know you from your ass better than I know your face. You know me from my ass better than you know me from my face? Yep. And hearing it said back to me slower only validates it more. Okay. And also just the way that they flop all over each other and they're so connected and they're so um, warm and, and comfortable with each other was um, definitely something that we knew Molly and Amy would have. And, and, and crazily compliment each other. <laughs> yeah. Effusively yeah, compliment exactly. each other well. Yeah, exactly. Which is something your characters do in Booksmart as well. Here's a clip from early on. Amy and Molly have just changed into their party outfits and they do a simultaneous reveal and both are wearing uh, blue jumpsuits and berets. No. 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 Not acceptable. This is not okay. Who allowed you to be this beautiful? Who allowed you to be this beautiful? Who allowed you to take my breath away? Call the Who paramedics. Nope. Call the police. Because there has been an emergency. I can't look right at it. Caitlin, one of yours you mentioned was the, the buddy comedy The Heat, uh, starring Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock. Jesus. What? What are those? What? What are those? Stop. Stop it. So my Banks, they hold everything together. Why? What's gonna f- come fucking popping out? Nothing. It just keeps everything where it's supposed to be, like in shit, like medically. Oh yes, our queens. This rough and ready character in Melissa's McCarthy's case, and and this buttoned up FBI agent. It, even though it's like a crazy, funny action comedy, there is a lot of heart to it. Hey, that's not right. No, it's not. No, that officer that you're making fun of, the one that you're all laughing at has more integrity, more commitment, more courage, and more guts than anybody in this room. I think it's so beautiful when you don't just have a comedy and it's completely funny the whole way through and you're trying to land a joke and I just think that there's there's so much more to life than just, you know, 
just being sad all the time or just being happy all the time. There's so much, um, you know, flow in between there. So Booksmart has you two in, in these roles that in in previous movies in this genre have always been male. Um, this is written by women, directed by Olivia Wilde, and it's not for either of you um, – the first movie you've been in made by women. Caitlin, you worked with a few female directors, and, and Beanie, of course, uh, on Lady Bird, you were working with uh, Greta Gerwig. Well, I've done five films, and four of them were directed by women. Wow. Um, which is pretty remarkable. And also, um, and the one that wasn't was directed by Nick Stoller, who is the most kind, generous man. I, I also think, you know, this movie was never, ever, ever you know, for two boys. And we never wanted it. It was always in the female voice. Um, And these characters are so, so strong and they are such strong women. But I I also just don't like, you know, I've had I've had such a privilege even in the past year working with Lisa Cholendenko. And the year before that, I worked with like Lynn Shelton and uh, Catherine Bigelow. Right. We've always been here. It's just a matter of, you know. It's not a matter of talent. It's a matter of opportunity. Yeah. And also, I think we're both um, women that want to be a part of stories that we would want to see. Uh-huh. And so we, we only choose um, or are lucky enough to be in films that resonate with us and are films that we would be there opening weekend if we weren't in them. And I think... Sometimes it's lovely to be a part of a male story, but to get to be a part of a distinctly female story, um, and those stories should be written and directed by women, um, is an incredible uh, part of our artistry and who we are as young women. Well, it, it, you, you do an incredible job, both of you. Uh, and, and as you say, as a unit, as this friendship yes. unit in this film. And so uh, congratulations, and, and Beanie and Caitlin, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Booksmart is in theaters now. Coming up, Ronald D. Moore grew up worshipping Star Trek, so becoming a Star Trek writer was a dream. But in his case, also... A bit of a nightmare. Eventually, I would kill Captain Kirk. I wrote, uh, co-wrote Star Trek Generations. And in that movie, we killed Captain Kirk. And, you know, I literally killed my childhood hero. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 1-0 It was 50 years ago this week that the final episode of the original Star Trek aired. For a show that still generates spin-off movies and spin-off TV series, it's kind of remarkable that that first series was canceled after only 3 seasons on the air. At the time, Ronald D. Moore was only 4 years old. Who is Ronald D. Moore, you ask? 
a writer on all three Star Trek series that aired during the 90s, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, and a co-writer on two of the Star Trek feature films, and who has gone on to write for the series Roswell, Battlestar Galactica, Caprica, and Outlander. In other words, one of the sci-fi screenwriters. Growing up in the 1970s in a small town in California's Central Valley, Ron Moore was not a sci-fi geek until reruns of that show about Kirk and Spock on the Enterprise changed his life. Be the captain of this Enterprise, Mr. Spock. Find a logical reason for sparing the Hawkins and make it stick. Star Trek was originally on the air on NBC from uh, 1966 to uh, early 1969. Uh, three seasons, 79 episodes, and I didn't really start watching it until uh, 1973, 1974. So it was in strip syndication, where it was on five days a week, which was even better, because then I could watch it every day after school. We're human beings with the blood of a million savage years on our hands. But we can stop it. We can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. I was a Kirk fan. I mean, I thought Kirk was, was the ultimate hero, and I wanted to be Kirk. Uh, he, he just, he had it all. He had a sense of humor, and yet there was this sort of loneliness of command that they always played, and there was something noble about that, and something self-sacrificing, and he always, you know, his only mistress was his ship, and there, I, there was something about that sort of romantic idea of a man and his ship that I always loved, and, and just kind of spoke to me as a young boy. Welcome home, Captain. I started pirating my own episodes. I had an audio recorder. Uh, you know, a standard audio cassette recorder that my dad had that he let me borrow, and I would set it next to the television speaker and record episodes. And many a night, I can remember drifting off to bed, listening to episodes of the Starship Enterprise. And to this day, I'll watch an episode from the original series, say, and I'll know exactly what sound cue is coming up, but I might be surprised by what's actually on screen, because I kind of remember it like a radio show. Correct to Enterprise. Scotty? Scott here, Captain. We're ready to beam up. I don't know that I was aware of the nerdy, trekky kind of stereotype for quite some time, mercifully so. I was in college, and I had a Captain Kirk poster in my, in my dorm room, and people started going, oh, he's one of those geeks. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, everybody likes Star Trek, don't you? I left Cornell my senior year. I sort of flunked out, sort of. <laughs> when you stop going to class completely, they call it flunking out. <laughs> they, they ask you to leave. So I left. And uh, I just sort of started life over when I didn't have a, a, a future anymore. And I moved to L.A. and was sleeping on a friend's floor and taking a bunch of odd jobs. And eventually I started dating this girl who found out that I was a fan of the original Star Trek series. And she had a connection to Star Trek The Next Generation, which was in its second season of production at that point. And she said, oh, you know, well, I know people over at Next Gen, and I could get you a tour of the sets. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then I just sat down, and I took a shot for no real reason. I just decided I was going to write an episode. And I sat down and wrote an episode of Next Generation, and I tucked it under my arm, and I brought it with me on the set tour. And I conned the guy that was giving me the set tour into reading it, and he liked it. And it turned out he was one of Gene Roddenberry's assistants. And suddenly I was there and I was writing for Star Trek. And I wrote The Adventures of the Enterprise week after week. I stood on its bridge, I sat in its captain's chair. And eventually I would kill Captain Kirk. I wrote, uh, co-wrote Star Trek Generations. 
And in that movie, we killed Captain Kirk, and you know, I literally killed my childhood hero. Did we do it? We make a difference. Oh yes, we made a difference. Thank you. At least I could do. For the captain of the Enterprise. It's a very deep, tender place on some level. I really wanted to do that to write the last chapter because then that made him human and made him one of us and somehow it made him real. Eric Malinsky produced that story in 2010. Ronald D. Moore has just wrapped production on a new space drama for Apple TV called For All Mankind. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Yeah, but why should we care what, you know, sort of like vulgar millionaires and billionaires do with their money? Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Tommy Bazarian. Evan Chung. Morgan Flannery. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. They flop all over each other and they're so connected and they're so warm and comfortable with each other. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. There are people that are like Broadway human beings. They go Broadway and their whole body vibrates at a different tempo. Regina Spector's a singer-songwriter. So how is she preparing for her run in a big Broadway theater? I sort of was thinking like, what's a Broadway-ish thing? Tap dance. Well, let me collaborate with a tap dancer. Regina Spector next time on Studio 360. Some days aren't yours at all.